Luke chapter 12. Last week we had the privilege of giving a broad introduction to this idea of idolatry of the heart, of fashioning idols. And we looked at the Old Testament, we looked at the New Testament, and it all stemmed actually from our first sermon of the year in Hebrews chapter 12. And just so that you know, a couple of you were asking for that sermon on a CD. It is on the back table. There are two um, CDs on the back table, one from a sermon that kind of gives the mission of our church, um, Paul's priorities for the church. And then there's another sermon that you'll see. Uh, I believe it's called Run With Endurance, and it's from Hebrews chapter 12. And that's back on the back table um, for you to take, for you to give away um, But my encouragement to us all is to think of this year as a year where we are very specific with the encumbrances that we have in our lives that are tangling us up, that are wrapping us up, that are slowing us down as we run. And if we can put all of our encumbrances into one main idea or one main word, the word would be idolatry. When we fashion idols out of the things that God has given to us or things that God has made then we effectively say, I will slow down as I run. I will not fix my eyes only on Jesus. I will run for other reasons with other things slowing me down. This morning, I want to look at the idol of money, the idol of money, the idol of greed. And I want to start in Luke chapter 12, because as soon as I say the idol of money, you might say, well, I have none. So that's not a problem for me. I remember I spoke on something similar to this in a college group setting one time. And I had three people come up to me and say, I didn't need to hear any of that. I don't have any money to to make an idol. I didn't need, need to hear that. And so I thought, you know what? I need to prove to you from God's word that we all need to hear this. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. So there are forms of greed Not just having a lot of money. There are other forms of greed. And Jesus gives us the motivation why. Even when one has an abundance, it doesn't mean that his life consists of what he has. So Jesus kind of throws the idea of greed as a subset of other many idols underneath it. And that greed is not only loving money or having lots of money and loving it. But greed is also having excessive anxiety about not having money. So maybe you don't have money, but you have excessive anxiety over not having it. Jesus would say, be on your guard. Beware. Turn a couple chapters over in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's a beautiful picture of idolatry. You cannot say, I will worship Jesus a little bit and worship other things a little bit. You either love Jesus and hate everything else, or you hate Jesus and love everything else. There's no middle ground. But then he categorizes it and says, you cannot serve God and well, some of your translations might say mammon. You cannot serve, and literally it's slave. You cannot slave for God and for well. You can't be a slave of two masters. It doesn't work. You must choose one. You must choose one. We talked last week about the fact that idols 
in our hearts, we do three things, biblically, three things with our idols. We love them, we trust them, and we obey them. We can kind of see all of those things wrapped up here. This is obviously obeying. You are a slave to your idol of money. But lovers of money are those who would find themselves daydreaming about how to make more money. What new things that they can buy with the money that they make. And looking down upon those or with envy at those who have more money than you do. That would be a lover of money. Trusters of money, people who trust in their money, feel that they have control over their lives and are safe and secure because of their money. So if money brings you security, if your savings account makes you able to sleep with a restful sleep at night, then you are a truster in your money. And ultimately, those who love and trust their money will become obedient to it, will become slaves to it. Because of our love and trust in money, we are driven to do whatever it takes to make it and to keep it. We become slaves of money. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that greed is idolatry. Loving money and having excessive anxiety over money is idolatry. And again, you might say, well, that doesn't really categorize me. I'm, I'm not really Ebenezer Scrooge here. I'm not that bad. And that's why I want to draw your attention to Jesus' words in Luke 12, where he says, beware, be on your guard. You know, he does not say in the scriptures, in the gospels, he never says, be on your guard for every form of sexual immorality. He never says that. Why does he say, be on your guard for all forms of greed? I think it's, I think it's obvious. Um, nobody... Nobody finds themselves in bed with someone who is not their spouse and wonders, wait, am I committing adultery? You don't have to be on guard for that. It's obvious. You know. You don't have to be alert. You don't slip into that. You know that. I've had many people over the course of um, the privilege I've had to be in pastoral ministry, I've had many people come to me with all sorts of different sin issues. Patrick, I need to meet with you. I'm struggling with, fill in the blank, struggling with, honoring my parents. I'm struggling with um, looking at pornography. I'm struggling with all sorts of things. You just fill in the blank. I have never once had anyone come to me and say, Patrick, I need to meet with you. I'm struggling with greed. Never once. I think that's because it's not very easy to detect in our hearts. And that's why Jesus says exactly what he says. Beware. It creeps up. You don't see it instantly. It takes a little bit of time and it's, it grows slowly. And, and it's not something that you see externally right off the bat. In fact, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sexual immorality. He warns about greed far more. So because of how often Jesus speaks of greed, and because he tells us in Luke chapter 12 to be on guard against it, here's what I want us to do. We have to begin with some sort of a working hypothesis that greed can easily be a problem for us, and it might be something that we even struggle with already. Okay? We have to allow for that possibility because Jesus says it's something that will be difficult to see and we must be on guard for it. So this morning, I want to look at the dangers of the idol of money and then I want to look at the amazing effect that grace has in the life of someone who has been changed and transformed by the kindness of our God. So just two main points this morning, the danger of the idol of money and the amazing effects that grace has. And we're going to stay in the book of Luke Go to Luke chapter 18. 
Luke chapter 18. We'll start number one with the danger of the idol of money, the dangerous effects of the idol of money. Familiar story to us, Luke chapter 18, verse 18. A ruler questioned Jesus. Now, Matthew 19, the parallel passage to this, says that this man was young, and both of these accounts say that he was rich. So that's why we get the phrase, a rich young ruler. He is a ruler in Luke 18, 18. He is rich in Matthew 19, 22, and uh, young as well. And both of these passages say he's wealthy, has a lot, lots of property, lots of land. So here is the rich young ruler. And he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? As we go through this passage, it's familiar to many of us. I heard a, I heard a sermon on this passage when I was in college that stuck with me up until this day. It has changed my Life, it changed my opinion of money, it changed my outlook on money. And after hearing a sermon on this passage, the words that stuck with me that I would desire to have stick with you as well is remember the rich young man. Remember the rich young man. Never forget him. Remember him. In fact, I, I, when I heard this sermon, I went home, I took a little plaque, a little wooden plaque, I took a crisp $1 bill. I put it onto the plaque, I put stuff on it that glues it on, and I put the words, remember the rich young man. And it's still in my office to this day, just to remember this sermon, this passage, this man. Remember his questions, remember the way that he goes about trying to earn eternal life. Remember the way that riches destroy his life. I never want to forget this man, and I hope and pray that you will never forget the rich young man. Never forget him. Why? Because he's a man just like us. He's human just like us. He struggles with the exact same things that you and I struggle with. He's also seeking eternal life, and there isn't anything more important for us to pursue than that, seeking eternal life. He's seeking something good, but he's seeking it in a way that is wrong. He's seeking it through works of the law, through legalism. He says, what shall I do? Verse 18. Matthew says, what one thing shall I do? Give me one thing. I'm doing all of these things, but there's still something lacking. Give me one more thing. What shall I do to earn or inherit eternal life? We see he already has a problem because he thinks that something you can do can earn you eternal life, can earn heaven's gates for you. So Jesus says to him, he's going to kind of go into the, the legalism perfectionist route. If you want to earn heaven, then you have to be perfect. So let's go there. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So you can't be perfect. Only God's perfect. So it's not going to work. But let's test it. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Matthew tells us that he also says, love your neighbor as yourself. Just kind of throws them all into one. Um, Keep all these commands. And the man says, All these things I have kept from my youth. All these things I have kept. So obviously he's self-deceived. Being his parent would not be an easy thing if you think, I'm perfect all the time. And he says, I've done it all. There's something I'm lacking, but it's not those things. It's something else. When Jesus hears this, 
He cuts to the quick and goes straight after his heart. And he says, one thing you still lack. You want to talk about one thing? I will tell you the one thing. Not the one thing to earn salvation, but I'll tell you the one thing that's keeping you from being saved. So you're asking for one action or one thing to get saved. I'm going to tell you the one thing that's keeping you from being saved. And it is this. Sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Come follow me. That's the main command there. Follow me. And the way that you follow me is by giving your treasures away, giving your possessions and distributing them to the poor. I I have an idea in my mind where Jesus is saying, look, you lack one thing. You have all these possessions. And in your hands, you cling to the treasures. You cling to the possessions that you own when you're trying to cling to me. And you have to follow me and you have to cling only to me. And you can't when you're holding on to these things. So... Give these things up. And don't just let them fall anywhere. Give them to the poor and then cling to me. You have an idol that's standing in the way. You are worshiping, trusting, loving that thing instead of following me. So, verse 23, what is he going to do? When he had heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. He was extremely rich, mega rich. He's hit the jackpot a couple times, and he's looking at Jesus and saying, I want eternal life, and you're telling me following you gets me there, so I don't want eternal life that much, because I still want my treasures. I still want my possessions. And Jesus looked at him. Imagine these words. Right off the heels of this man being sad, knowing that he's extremely rich, knowing that he has a lot to give up, Jesus says to him, Oh, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew tells us that he went away sad. This rich young ruler went away sad. And just picture what he's going away from and to. He went away to his possessions. He went away to his riches And he went away leaving behind Jesus. It should have been the other way around. I will leave behind my possessions and I will cling to Jesus. But instead, he leaves behind Jesus. And think about all that he left behind that day. He leaves behind Jesus. He leaves behind everything to cling to that which is fleeting. Jesus says, give up your idol. Give up your idol and cling to me. Follow me. You're clinging to your idols. Cling to me. But then he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He says, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the, to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it money? Why is it riches? Why is it hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? A couple different reasons. Number one, because money can get you a lot of things. Money can get you a lot of the stuff that you desire, power, love, friends, sex, forgetting hard times, enjoying good times. Money gets you all of those things. Remember the prodigal son, when he got the money that he was going to get when his father died, when he um, received all that money, he left, he had fun, he made friends, he had a great time. His money bought him freedom. But then when it was all gone, everything reversed he was a slave again no no more freedom no money no freedom he's a slave no money no friends he's friendless not happy money has a lot to offer you 
And that's one of the reasons why it is an enormous idol, because it can get you other idols if you have it. But another reason why it's so hard, and, and that's this verse 25. I've heard so many different people that try to make a camel going through the eye of a needle something that it's not. I don't know if you guys have heard these before. Some people say, well, there was such a thing as a, um, the needle gate in Jerusalem, and a camel had to get down on his knees and, and crawl through the needle gate. It doesn't work for two reasons. Number one, there is no such thing as a needle gate in Jerusalem. And number two, camels don't crawl. They don't walk like that on their knees. Um, they don't do that. I guess a third reason is that's not what the text say, says because Jesus is going to say it's impossible, verse 27. The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So he's trying to give an image of something that is impossible, such as a camel fitting through the eye of a needle. That's exactly what it says. In lofty theological terms, we call, we call that view that it's a, you know, a, a needle gate with a camel. Go, we, we call it um, baloney. That's what it's called. And that's not what it is. Jesus is trying to say, if you are wealthy, it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God. That, those are hard words. Those are hard words to hear. But what is he trying to say? And I think we can see it in the context here. He's trying to say, if you trust in money as your God, if money is your idol, then you are not trusting in Jesus as your God. You are not trusting in Jesus as someone who can save you from these idols. You are just trusting in Jesus in some false belief. You see, true, genuine, biblical, saving faith is trusting in Jesus more than just he can save me. You think about the demons, right? James chapter 2, verse 19, the demons believe in God. They know God exists. They believe God can do all these things. But what's the difference between their belief, that is, condemning belief, and true saving belief? The difference is a love, a treasure, a cherishing that a saving belief gives you. Um, how many wealthy, rich people would love to say, um, I'm going to keep my wealth and say Jesus is my Savior and not worry about it. I'm going to trust in my wealth, but I'm going to say Jesus can save me. That doesn't save. That doesn't save. If you treasure money, if you value money above all things, then you're going to work your behind off to get more. You will strive to earn more. You'll be careful how you save it and what you spend it on because you want more of it. And Jesus might just be your fire insurance kind of put him in the back and say, no, what I'm really pursuing is money, but Jesus can save me from hell. Or if Jesus is your treasure, then you're going to strive to find more ways to get more of him. You're going to love him. You're going to let everything else fade away to get him and him alone. Treasuring Jesus Christ, pursuing him, following him as Lord, as master, as savior, and as treasure is saving faith. And that's one of the reasons why God is absolutely in the business of knocking props out from under us. We trust in things, and God says, I love you too much to allow you to think that that thing can save you. And I'll knock it out from under you. Uh, often we think that the bad times are the bad times. We think that the bad times are bad for us, but I really believe the good times are the bad times for us. The good times are the most dangerous times for us because then we start to trust in the things that God has given to us and not in God himself. It's one of the reasons why the 
The writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, says, Oh God, do not give me too much that I forget you, and do not give me so little that I steal. Give me just enough to keep me content. That's all I need. Just give me enough. Jesus tells this man, if you want to follow me as treasure, if you want to truly follow me, not just say, oh, I trust you, but truly follow me, then you must release what your treasure is now, what functionally is your treasure to you now, what you love most, what you cherish most. You must let that go and cling to me as treasure. If you don't do that, then you can't follow me. But he doesn't stop there. He says it's impossible. It's impossible. Verse 26, the people around who are hearing it say, then who can be saved? Who can be saved if wealthy people can't be saved? Who can be saved if, in in their mind, they thought that wealthy people God had blessed and prospered and favored, and of course God loves them because they must be righteous. So who can be saved? And Jesus says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. It is impossible for you to please God or be satisfied by God when your mind is set on the things of the flesh. Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and it cannot even please God. Uh, You cannot force your will to do something, to feel some way, to desire something. You can absolutely force yourself to do something that you don't like to do. That's kind of the lesson of school, (laughs) Classes that you don't like, you have to force yourself to do it and do well in it. But you cannot force yourself to love something that you don't truly love. You cannot go deep enough to the desire. Your your will can control your actions, but your will cannot control your will. To get deep enough down, you need to change your will. You need to change what it is you love the most. And you can't do that on your own. What's the answer? You must be born again. That's here in verse 27. It's impossible for you to change what your treasure is. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. It was impossible for you to decide when you wanted to be born physically, right? It just happened to you. None of us remember that. So too, Jesus is the one who has to begin the process of the new birth so that you can have new affections. Remember Ezekiel chapter 36? God took out the heart of stone, replaces it with the heart of flesh. That's what must happen in order for us to have new affections, new desires. We must be born again. Did the rich young ruler turn back to Jesus and say, yes, I want to be born again. I will throw away my treasure. I will pursue you and you alone as treasure. I will crush my idols of money and of greed and I will follow you. No, I don't think that's what happened. Turn to First Timothy chapter 6. I'll show you what I think happened to this rich young ruler. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction because the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. What happened to the rich young ruler? I, I think based on this verse, his riches consumed his life so much to the point where quite possibly he committed suicide. 
he could not have enough, or maybe he lost it all, but he had harmful desires and he was plunged into ruin and destruction and pierced himself with many griefs. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And please hear that verse correctly. A lot of people outside of the church and even inside the church will say, money is the root of all evil. Okay, that's not true, right? The love, cherishing money, is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's not even the love of money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But again, the heart is the issue. What do you love? What do you cherish? What do you treasure? The rich young ruler treasured money. He thought it would give him everything his heart desired. And I think if I can take from the famous and wonderful theologian Jim Carrey, he says it this way. I think everyone should get rich, and I think everyone should get famous and do everything that they ever dreamed so that they can see that it's not the answer. You see, even a non-believer understands all I wanted was money. And now here he is, an actor, Jim Carrey, a billionaire. And he says, nope, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. There's something else out there. Just like the rich young ruler, there's something else out there. What can I do? I need something. And Jesus says, it's me. Pursue me. Follow me. Cling to me. But this man's wealth was just too much for him. Jesus continues on and he says to Peter and the disciples who are saying, well, we've left a lot. We, we're clinging to you. And he says, don't worry, it'll be repaid back to you in heaven. And then he foretells his death. He says, I'm going to die. You're going to have to follow me unto death. And then he heals blind Bartimaeus who has saving faith. He says, please make me well. Please save me. Only you can. And then he enters into Jericho. And verse nine, or chapter 19, verse 1, we're going to see a similar man. He's a, he's a rich old ruler, if you will. But we're going to see, number two, so we see the dangerous effects of the idol of money. It destroys you. If you cling to money as your idol, then you cannot cling to Jesus Christ for saving faith. But number two, we're going to see this man named Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and see the amazing effects of grace. Number two, the effects of amazing grace. Luke chapter 19, verse 1 and 2 Jesus enters Jericho and is passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, we have to know a little bit about tax collectors. Um, they weren't liked back then, just like they're probably not liked that much right now. Um, I don't know anybody who enters a party and says, hey, I work for the IRS. Uh, it's probably not happening much. So too back then there was a stigma to it, but even more so because there was a lot of illegal activity happening. Needs a little bit of an explanation. Rome takes over Israel. Rome takes over a country and they say, hey, you can live there. You can be peaceable, have fun. This is all we want. Two things. We want you to keep the peace. Don't fight against us. We'll destroy you. And we want you to pay your taxes. That's all we want from you. Keep the peace, pay your taxes. You can believe in whatever God you want to believe in. Have fun, do your thing. Just keep the peace and pay the taxes. So they had to bring in the taxes. Now, how do we do that? We can either, if we're Rome, send Roman citizens over and we'd have to pay the money to go over to these um, little countries and take the tax and come back. It's a lot of cost to us, a lot of money to us. Or what we can do is say, hey, Israelites, people that we've conquered, we need you to keep the peace and we need you to pay the taxes. We need tax collectors. 
And here's what we're going to do. This was Roman rule. If you become a tax collector for us, you can go to any of your brethren. You can go to anybody in the country and say, hey, guess what? You owe Rome money. Be like me going to Keith and say, hey, Keith, you owe Rome money. I'm sorry, but they say that you owe them $500. When in reality, all Keith owes is $100 to Rome. So I'd take the 100 give it to Rome. I'd take the 400 pocket it for me. There was a rule, there was a law that was passed that tax collectors could do that. That way, Rome says, we don't have to pay anybody to do our job. You guys can do it in your country, and we know people are going to sign up for this gig. We know they are. Who's going to sign up for this? I mean, just picture, wanted, anybody who desires to get rich quick. That's what we want. So Zacchaeus signs on the dotted line, and he says, I want to get rich. I'll do whatever it takes. I will betray my countrymen. I will betray those next to me. I will lie. I will cheat. I will steal. I want to get rich. Everybody knew this was the way the tax collectors worked, and so tax collectors were hated. In fact, they were lumped into the sinner category, the pagan category. It was Jesus eats with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. Tax collector was thrown in there. I mean, that's, that's in a different category in my mind, but no, no, no. That is wicked and evil to these people because they all knew it. They all knew what was going on, and that's one of the reasons why in verse 3, Zacchaeus is trying to see who Jesus was, was unable to because of the crowd, because he was small in stature. Now, it's not that he can't see Jesus because he's small in stature. It's that he's unable to see Jesus because of the crowd. He's small in stature. I've been to many rock shows in my time. And whenever I go, I always feel bad to any, for anybody standing behind me. In fact, sometimes I will hear the groans of people as they walk up and go, oh, there's a big man in front of me. And so sometimes if I'm nice, I'll say, hey, stand in front of me. Go ahead, go ahead. I don't know you, but go ahead, have fun. See, I'm sorry that you're short and I'm tall. Please, enjoy the concert. But these people, as Zacchaeus is saying, can I please get through? Can I please see? I can't see. They're saying, no way. You're a tax collector. Get in the back. I'm glad you're short. Get in the back. You shouldn't see. How dare you try to attempt to get up and enjoy our kindness to you? No, no, no. It wasn't because he was small that he couldn't see. It was because of the crowd saying, get in the back. We hate you. You have no right to be up here. You have no right. They hated him not just because he was a tax collector. If you look in verse 2, he is a chief tax collector. So he's not just wicked. He is wicked, wicked. He is the arch tax collector in the Greek. He is the highest of the highest. And because of that, he's rich. He's rich. But he's desiring to see Jesus. He wants to see him. He wants to see him so badly, verse 4, that he runs on ahead and climbs up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he's a about to pass through that way. Now, we know that this is some form of desperation because a good Jewish man who cares about his dignity would never run and would never climb trees. Back then, for all intents and purposes, Jewish men wore really long, thick dresses. And so in order to climb into a tree, you've got to maneuver things and you've got to be careful and maybe you've got to show you got to pull the dress up a little bit and show your white legs that haven't seen the sun in ages and everybody's blinded. And this man says, I don't care. I want Jesus more than I care about my dignity. I want Jesus more than I care about what other people think of me. You can already see evidences of grace starting to pop up in his life. Um, 
do I cling to my dignity or cling to Jesus? Oh, it's fine to throw my dignity. I'll cling to Jesus. Do I cling to what other people think of me or do I cling to Jesus? I don't care. I want to cling to Jesus. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today I must stay at your house. Come down because I'm going to your house. This was something my mother told me never to do. Don't ever invite yourself over to somebody's house. But Jesus can do it because he's Jesus. So he does it. He says, can I come over? I'm, I'm coming over. Get ready. One of the things that I love about this is that ultimately when it comes down to it, it's not Zacchaeus who is asking Jesus into his life. It's Jesus asking Zacchaeus into his life, which is beautiful, effectual calling grace. This is beautiful, a beautiful picture of the call of God on the life of those he loves, that he calls to himself. He says, I'm coming to stay at your house. I'm coming to be with you. And he draws them and he calls them. And so he hurries down. Verse 6, that's exactly what he was wanting. Hurries down, receives him gladly or literally with joy. Again, evidence of grace. He is so excited that Jesus is going to be with him and stay with him. When they all saw it, verse 7, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So again, his reputation precedes him. Everybody knows it. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, verse 8, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. So they haven't even gotten back to his house. And Zacchaeus stops Jesus, possibly in front of all these crowds, and says, I need to make things right. He has received Jesus with joy, with gladness. Something is changing in his heart. And as it's changing in his heart, in his affections, in his will, his actions are changing. He knows he has to change these things. And so he does something very, very radical. Zacchaeus gives 50% of his income to the poor. Right? He says, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. 50% I'm going to give to the poor. That is far above the 10% that was required by the Mosaic law. He's just lavishing gifts upon people. It's not, okay, I'll give the bare minimum. It's, I just want to give. I want to give away. And then Zacchaeus gives back four times the amount that he had cheated. Again, the Mosaic restitution said that you had to give back 20% interest on what you had stolen. 20% interest. Zacchaeus, by giving four times back, gives 300% interest on what he stole. So 20% interest or 300% interest. You see, he's not saying, like the rich young ruler, what must I do to gain eternal life? He's saying, I've already gotten eternal life through you freely giving it to me, and so I am just giving away what you have lavishly given to me. I'm giving away what I have defrauded other people of. I'm giving away what I have stolen. And listen to Jesus' response, verse 9. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of of Abraham. Today, not salvation will come if you do these things. He's not saying, Zacchaeus, that's a great promise. If you do those, you will have eternal life. He says, it's obvious eternal life's already come. 
It's obvious that your life has changed. Why? Because you've divested yourself of all of your possessions. You're saying, I don't care. I'm not clinging to that. I started walking up to you and climbing up the sycamore tree with a heart that had an idol of money and of greed. I loved money. I, I was clinging to money. But then I saw you and you spoke to me and you called me and I know who you are and, and you have loved me. And so I release my grasp on my money. I'll give it away. And I will cling only to you. I will cling only to you. I love Jesus' response. Salvation has come. If salvation were an earned gift, then Zacchaeus would have asked, God, how much must I give? How much do I have to give back in order to be saved? But instead he says, I have been given grace. I have been loved by a holy, righteous man who should have no dealings with a sinner like me, and yet he says, I want you. I want to lavish my love on you. I want to lavish my grace on you. And grace, the amazing effect that grace has in the heart of a believer is that it changes their affections. The new birth has taken place in Zacchaeus' heart. And because of that, the effects that take place are money goes back to being exactly what it should be to Zacchaeus. No longer an idol, no longer what you love, trust, and obey, but instead it just becomes a tool in the hands of a sinner saved by grace that must be held on to loosely and used only for the glory of God. When grace comes into our lives, it changes our perspective on everything. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. When he's asking the Corinthian church to give money, he says, you know what, I could force you to give. I could command you as an apostle to give. But instead, I want to remind you of somebody who gave of themselves. And it's Jesus Remember Philippians chapter 2, Jesus left the riches and wealth of heaven to be born as a human. To humble himself to the point of being a slave and dying the death of a cross. And Paul says, you know what, I could force you to give money. I could command that of you. But instead I want to remind you, as those who have been loved by Jesus Christ, I just want to remind you what Jesus did for you and say, give. Give the way that he gave. Some people ask me, Patrick, do we have to tithe? Um, it's, a long, it's a longer conversation. The short of it is, no, I don't think that we are required to tithe 10% of what we've been given um, because I think that that is in the Old Testament. I think that that is one of the covenant laws that we don't have to do anymore. But I will say this. I think that we should always give more than 10% because if Old Testament covenant believers had to give 10%, that's what they were required to give. How much more, now that we have seen the grace of God lavished upon us, should we just say, you know what, whatever. We shouldn't be saying only 10%, only 10 We should lavish what God has given to us. Lavish it on others. So I think we should give. Yes, we can call it a tithe. I'm fine with that. Call it, you know, round it to 10% and then give more. Fine, fine by me. But the bottom line is when Paul asks the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he says, you know what, don't worry about the 10%. Jesus didn't tithe of his blood. He didn't say, here's a little bit for you and a little bit for you and we'll be good there. He freely gave, so we too should freely give. So, Zacchaeus is changed by the amazing grace that God provides in Jesus Christ. So we have the rich young ruler, we have the rich old ruler, we have two completely different circumstances, but we still have this issue of money. What do we do with it? Do we just kind of, no, I don't want any of it. Do we just, what do we do with money? What's the alternative to greed? What's the alternative to making idols, something that you cherish and treasure? 
How should we feel about money? The reality is some of you may be very rich. Um, Some of you younger people might get rich. And some of you might already be that way. And that's fine. Here's my simple answer. If I can just kind of sum it all up. How are we supposed to think and feel about money? This is the answer that I would give. Resolve to live a wartime lifestyle and give away the rest. Resolve to live a wartime lifestyle and give away the rest. That's why we were singing about Jesus being our king. Lead us on into battle. Lead us on. Soldiers on the front lines aren't worried about, why do I have to sit down in this car that has really bad shocks? Why can't I be in this beautiful Escalade? They're saying, you know what? If I can have a a Jeep, if I can just sit in anything that moves that I don't have to march, thank you. I'll be happy. There's an amazing example of this down in Long Beach. My wife and I have visited the Queen Mary. Um, We actually had a conference there, a marriage conference there that we were um, leading the music through song or the, the worship through song for it. It was really, really fun. And it was amazing to see at that museum, because it is a museum now, this boat is now a museum, and one half of it you can see the luxury liner that it used to be, and the other half you can see how it was changed and transformed to be a, a warship to carry troops into war in World War II. One writer commenting on it says it this way, The Queen Mary, lying in repose in a harbor in Long Beach, California, is a fascinating museum of the past used both as a luxury liner in peacetime and as a troop transport during World War II. Its present status as a museum, the length of three football fields, affords a stunning contrast between the lifestyle appropriate for, for peace and for war. On one side of a partition, you see a dining room reconstructed to depict peacetime table settings that were appropriate to the wealthy patrons of high culture, for whom a dazzling array of knives and forks and spoons held no mysteries. On the other side of the partition, the evidences of wartime austerities are in sharp contrast. One metal tray with indentations replaces 15 plates and saucers. Bunks, not just double, but eight tiers high, explain why the peacetime complement of 3,000 gave way to 15,000 soldiers on board in wartime. How repugnant to the peacetime masters this transformation must have been. To do it took a national emergency, of course. The survival of a nation depended on it. And I would say to us this morning, the essence of the Great Commission depends on us having a wartime mentality about our money. It depends on that. The survival of millions of people depends on the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And in order to get the gospel into the world, we need to do whatever it will take. We need to do that. Now, I am not here to tell you what you can or cannot have. Please, please know I'm not here to tell you that. I'm not here to judge what you might already have. That's not my place. All I want to be for you this morning is a little voice that tells you in a world of many billions of voices telling you you don't have enough, you don't have enough, you need more, you need more, you owe it to yourself. I I just want to be a little voice that says, you know what, God will provide. You don't need more. God will take care of you. He will. He will. You remember what Paul says? Paul says it in, uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, or no, it's 1 Timothy, sorry. Paul says it in 1 Timothy. He says, you know what? If all we have is food and covering, we'll be content. If all we have is food and covering, we'll be content. 
I just want to be a, a, a smaller little voice in, in a myriad of voices saying, you know what? God will provide. Don't be anxious. Matthew chapter 6, be anxious for nothing. God will clothe you the way that he clothes the grass and the flowers in the field. He'll take care of you. He will. This doesn't mean that you don't work hard, and it doesn't mean you can't make a lot of money. Go out and make $500,000. Go out and make a million dollars. Make a lot of money and then live off of sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 and give the rest away. Let money flow through your hands. Do not cling to it as an idol or else it will start to choke out your love for Jesus Christ. It will. It will. So, please don't pursue getting rich for the purpose of having money, to be your comfort, to be your treasure, to be that which can satisfy your soul. I personally, as a pastor, am scared to death of getting rich. Um, imagine if people saw, well, look at you, you live in mansions, you live in these beautiful houses, you own all these different things, you own all these different cars and, and a private jet and all this stuff. Imagine what they would think about the gospel. Imagine what they would think about God. So your ticket to earning the money, to earning your treasure is God. So what? Go to church, have fun and earn your real treasure, which is God. For me, that'll be work. For me, that'll be something else. And I will earn my treasure, which is money. But we both have the same treasure, ultimately. It's money, and you're just using church to get it. That's why I praise the Lord for accountability with Brian and with Tim and with Micah, who will hold me accountable to that. I pray that you would hold me accountable to that. Don't live lavishly. There's no need to do that. I want the world to, to look at me and see Jesus clearly is my treasure. My money can just flow through my hands. Just two examples from the Old Testament. I love these two examples. We don't have time to do both, so I'll just tell you the first one. Two examples of one is the danger of money and what it ultimately does, where it will ultimately lead, and the other is how to view your money, okay? Second Kings chapter 5, you can write it down. You know the story. Naaman, leprosy, Syrian king, um, is told, you know what, you can get rid of the leprosy if you go to this man of God. Um, this man of God called Elisha, he's a prophet, he will heal you. And Naaman's not too happy about that, doesn't want to do it. We actually might look at his story in a little bit um, with the idol of power and prestige and fame and success because he's a great example of that. He says, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go to this man. Finally, he goes to the man. Elisha tells him you have to dip in the Jordan, dirty, nasty, stinky river. Naaman says, I don't want to do that. Well, you have to do it if you want to get healed. I don't want to do it. Okay, fine, I'll, I'll do it. I'll finally go ahead and do it. Goes down, he's healed. You remember it. And then he comes out when he's healed, and he says, okay, I owe you something. What, what can I give you for that? And he offers him a bunch of silver talents, which is a lot of money. He just says, here, I'll lavish. He's a king. I'll lavish all this wealth upon you because of what you did. And Elisha says, no. No, we will not take any of your money because I'm not going to peddle God around. I'm not using God to get rich. God graciously allowed me to speak into your life to heal you, but I'm not using him to get rich. So no, we will not have any of your money. And you remember his little henchman, right? Elisha's little tiny henchman named Gehazi. Gehazi says, what? He's listening. He, all these storehouses, these huge treasure boxes of talents of silver. And Gehazi says, what? We're not taking that? What? What are we doing? So Naaman leaves. 
And Gehazi says, Elisha, I'll be right back. And he goes and tracks him down. And, and Gehazi says to Naaman, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know what got into my master. He thought we didn't need this. We actually do. So can I just take some money and bring it back? Thank you so much. And Naaman's like, yeah, absolutely. Take it. Takes it back. Tries to hide it, which is the dumbest thing to do when you're the slave of a prophet. <laughs> Elisha says, where were you? And he lies. Again, stupid thing to do. He lies and says, I wasn't anywhere, nowhere. And Elisha says, because your heart has been filled with greed, the leprosy that Naaman had that was cleansed is now your leprosy. And you will die the death that Naaman was supposed to die. It will be yours because of your heart filled with greed. Riches and a heart filled with greed is a leprosy that clings to you when you are in love with money. It's a leprosy that clings to you. But here's the difference. Greed is a leprosy that clings to you that the world looks at. They look at all your leprous sores and they say, oh, it's beautiful. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, look at what you have. Instead of saying, no, that will kill you. That will destroy you. That will destroy you. Don't ever buy into the voice of the world saying, oh, look at your beautiful leprous sores of greed and the idol of money and riches. If you start to listen to them too intently, you'll start looking at your own sores of greed and go, yeah, they are kind of pretty after all. What are we supposed to do? Second Samuel chapter 19. Turn there. We'll, we'll be done with this. Second Samuel chapter 19. A little background. We've got David. He's uh, in quite a predicament as king. He's got a bunch of turmoil going on. Long story short, he has a um, one, one master or one uh, slave named Ziba. And he has another friend that he's taken in, a, a family friend that he's taken in from Saul's family named Mephibosheth. He has these two people. And Ziba was going to have all of the inheritance that uh, David was going to give. He was going to give him this amount of money, this inheritance when he died. And then when Mephibosheth came, David said, I'll split it between you two. Okay, I'll split it between you guys. So Ziba says, no, I don't want that. I want all the money. So he goes to David. He tells Mephibosheth a lie and says, David doesn't like you anymore, basically. Get out of here. Mephibosheth, weeping, leaves. Says, David doesn't like me. And then Ziba goes to David and says, Mephibosheth hates you. He left. He doesn't want to be here anymore. I guess I get all the inheritance. I guess I get all the money that was going to be owed to him. That's the backdrop. Mephibosheth comes back. He comes back and he sees David. And David says to Mephibosheth, where were you? What's going on? Mephibosheth tells him the whole story. He understands Ziba's an evil servant. We get, we get the picture. And then, verse 29, the king says, I was going to give all of the inheritance to you, and now I was going to split it between you and Ziba, and I can't give you all the money. Verse 29 of Second Samuel 19, the king said to him, to Mephibosheth, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. So originally, Mephibosheth, you were going to get it all. And then Ziba was going to get it all because he lied. And now I'll give you both. And I'm sorry that I can't give you everything that I had promised to you. I'm very sorry about that. But I got to give some to Ziba because I promised some to him. I got to give both of you half now. Listen to Mephibosheth's response. Verse 30. This is the way I want us to feel about money in light of Jesus being our treasure. Mephibosheth says to the king, let Ziba take it all since my Lord, the king has come safely home to his own house. I don't care about the money. If I have you, 
David, you were gone. I was gone. We were gone. Now we're reunited. We are reconciled. And all I want is you. So I don't care if you give me any money. I just want you. He's saying, look, I can have the option of having money or I can have the option of having you. And I don't care. I'm letting the money go. I just want you. He feels that way about a human. How much more should we feel that way about our Savior? Why should we fight against greed? Four simple reasons in conclusion. We should fight against greed because money is fleeting. Money is fading away. Luke chapter 12, you can make storehouses, you can make barns, you can do all these things, but when you die, you can't take it with you. So we should fight against greed because money is fleeting. We should fight against greed, number two, because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6, 10. Number three, we should fight against greed because God will provide for our needs. Matthew 6, he will So don't feel like you have to fight for the needs. Again, work hard. You must work hard and provide for your family, men, or else you are worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. So work hard. And work hard and make lots of money. That's not the issue. The issue is how you view the money. Number four, we should fight against greed because Jesus is our greatest treasure. He is the one that we cling to over and above anything else this world has to offer. That's why Philippians 1.21 says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's hitting the jackpot even more because we get more of Jesus. That's why Matthew 13 verse 44 says that there was a man who found a treasure in the field and when he found it, he went home, he sold everything he had. Everything in one hand, he lets it go to gain the treasure that was in the field. That's Jesus to us. Jesus is that treasure in the field. Will you give up everything to have him? Is he your treasure this morning? If he isn't, can we pray and ask the Lord to work in your heart to grow new affections, maybe to give you the new birth once and for all, or maybe to grow in sanctification and see the fleeting nature of money and that Jesus alone is our treasure. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is our treasure. We thank you. Nothing in this world can compare to the riches that are found in him. And God, we just pray that as we focus our attention on you and as we sing in light of what we have heard from your word, that you would be gracious, that you would work in our hearts to grow new affections for your son, and that he would be the treasure of our lives now and forevermore. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.